Hi everybody, welcome to the Long Distance Work Life Podcast. My name is Wayne Turmel, and we are without Marissa today. That doesn't mean you can go away, because we have an excellent conversation uh, scheduled today. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is the podcast, as you know, for folks who want to live and thrive and survive and keep the weasels at bay in remote and hybrid work. And I'm really excited about today's conversation. I'm going to bring in our guest, James El- Ellsmore. Hi, James. Hi, Wayne. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being had. Uh, James is with Island Innovations, and as always, we will have links in the show notes to all this. James, real quick, what does Island Innovations do? So we are an international network for island communities working on sustainable development, which is everything from the environment. But when we think about sustainability, economy and society is a big part of that. And so this future of work conversation, Digital Nomad, has a huge impact on so many islands worldwide and is really changing what it means to uh, to, to live on an island and what it means to be in a remote location. Yeah, as we record this, it is becoming November in the northern part of the country and living in warm islands uh, tends to become more of a dream for a lot of folks. I know you are living in Portugal. That is not a Portuguese accent. You are living what you talk about, certainly. Um, and and well, I first of all, I was going to say, I started Island Innovation while I was living remotely and traveling remotely, um, was living, moving around and and doing the digital nomad lifestyle only relatively recently that I've settled down in Portugal. But we have a team of 20 people all living and working on different islands worldwide. So we're a practice what we preach, a fully remote company in that sense. I love that. And so we're going to look at two sides of this. There's the I would love to go sit on a beach somewhere and do my coding from, you know, somewhere in the Seychelles. And then there is the islands themselves. So let's start with the countries that are trying to uh, bring in digital nomads. I mean, the first thing, obviously, is sun, surf, whatever. But what are what is the message that these islands are sending out to people to come and work there. So there were during the pandemic, there were a number of islands that launched different initiatives or visas to attract remote workers to come and live there. One was Barbados made a lot of headlines. It was an early starter in the Caribbean with a remote work visa and also Madeira, which is an island within Portugal. So could not issue its own visa, but made a case for attracting remote workers there. And of course, during the pandemic, um, they, they were using the idea of travel restrictions, the fact that it made sense to go somewhere for a long time. And of course, for many people, the idea of remote work was a sudden reality. So the pandemic um, accelerated, in my opinion, a trend that was already existing, and it brought it to the forefront of many people's uh, minds. The idea is that remote workers or digital nomads are a new form of tourist, different form of tourist, and that they can attract, um, and and that they're a good opportunity for tourism-dependent destinations to bring in more money and, and build their build their economy. And so there have been various schemes in different parts of the world pushing to attract these with the recognition that the needs of someone coming for three, four months or longer 
are different than someone coming for a week and staying in a resort. And so they need to be catered to differently. Yeah, let's talk about that. So if I am the minister of, is this tourism or labor in most islands? Or normally tourism. And we can say, actually, it shouldn't be always because it's not really tourism. But let's say tourism. Okay, so I'm the Ministry of Tourism in Barbados or Curacao or whatever the island is. Uh, what are the needs that are different, right? If I'm going to attract somebody for three or four months uh, at a time, what's different than if I'm just trying to get them to come and stay, you know, at the resort? Well, I, I would imagine, I mean, maybe there's a few exceptions, but most people are not going to be staying in an all-inclusive resort for three or four months. I think that's beyond the price uh, price uh, limitations for most people. So we're more likely looking at Airbnbs or other local accommodation, people who are more integrated, whereas often, especially in the Caribbean, resorts are kind of a world unto themselves that people go to and they don't necessarily venture out into seeing the, the real world on the island that they're in. Obviously, if you're there for a longer period of time, you're probably spending less money per day, but you're living more like a local. So you're living in a residential area, you're spending money in the supermarket or more local restaurants. And so the idea is also that not only are people, um, people are interacting differently with the destination than a traditional tourist. And one possible benefit of that is that it's argued that those visitors although they may be spending less money per day than um, the high-end tourism, they're more likely to spend that money in the local economy at local establishments, as opposed to a big resort that may be owned by someone who doesn't even live there. And so the profit of that individual may be leaving the island. So th there are some economic arguments there for attracting uh, remote workers to come and stay on an island for a longer period of time with the idea that they can make an economic contribution in the same way that tourists do, um, but also that they, you know, most likely are small business owners or, or, or otherwise, that they're also able to interact with the local business community. So how can they, as an individual working, interact with the business startup ecosystem that is local, let's say in Barbados, um, in a way that a, a normal tourist just would not? How do we make sure that that happens? I mean, there was some fufara in the in the news this summer that in Mexico City, for example, certain neighborhoods are kind of being inundated by people coming in and not integrating and not you know driving up prices without contributing to the local economy as much as might be expected. I mean, again, if I'm the minister of of tourism, what am I thinking about? How do we make that uh, a more reciprocal kind of arrangement? Mm -hmm. Look, I, I think you could say, firstly, tourism itself has a lot of trade-offs. You know, tourism is right. far, far from being a perfect industry. There are a lot, a, a lot of well-known disadvantages that come with large-scale tourism. Um, and so tourism is always seen as something where the negative impacts have to be managed. And I would say, exactly the same way that um, remote workers as, a, as an industry needs to be well managed. Because one of the obvious, as you just mentioned, one of the obvious potential impacts is that on housing. Um, and so talking about Portugal, um, there's been a lot of concern about how remote workers have been driving up prices in Portugal, but specifically uh, concentrated in relatively small areas of the country. You know, these are not spread all over the country. 
Um, so the center of Lisbon, Porto, the big cities have attracted people. Um, what the government here in Lisbon has done is actually put a moratorium on new Airbnbs because so many people, uh, so many apartments were being converted into Airbnbs uh, that it, it was becoming a problem for locals to rent houses. So that's a good example of a of strategy for managing this kind of income. Now there's been a growing awareness within Portugal that, okay, remote workers are a good opportunity, but they need to be spread across the country because if they're concentrated in the capital, then um, the benefits that they bring and the money that they're spending is concentrated there, but also the impact on housing is very concentrated in one area. So it's it's a new way of, uh, it's a new, in, it's a new industry that needs to be managed and, and policy is, is important when uh, accounting for this. I would say housing is the biggest uh, potential impact in many cases. Now, we were talking off screen, there are, at last time I counted, somewhere between 45 and 50 countries that are creating visas, mm -hmm. actual work visas for people who want to come and work there, either mm -hmm. for a few months at a time or, or a year, whatever. What do those visas actually do? What do they permit? What do they not permit? Why don't I just show up? And as long as my paycheck is coming from Cleveland, it really doesn't matter, right? So those visas are interesting. I think it's worth saying, firstly, that obviously to issue a visa, you need to be a country. So the, I mentioned Madeira before, which is part of Portugal. Madeira does not have the power to issue a visa as it's part of Portugal. They need to wait for the state to do that. So they went ahead and initiated um, a digital nomad program, which was primarily around information, making sure that people who were coming understood what was available, co-working spaces, housing opportunities. And so it's perfectly possible to encourage remote workers, digital nomads to come to a location without a specific visa. Um, the Portuguese government has more recently integrated one. Um, and there are other islands and other places that have, have pushed that. The visas are interesting. Often they have a relatively high minimum income requirement. The argument being that the island only wants to receive people with high spending potential that are going to spend money, right? Um, so that's that's one barrier. I know that in some cases, I, I don't have specifics, but in, in many of these countries, the uptake of visas is very, very small. And I would argue that the biggest benefit that these visas have had have been the marketing potential. Because you can go, as, as uh, an American, you can go to Malta, which has issued a visa, for three months without needing a visa. So and if, if you're planning to stay for a year, obviously it's different. But often we're talking about you know, two to three month stays, um, in which case you can go under the existing visitor requirements anyway. And as a European, you can go to Malta or Portugal without needing a visa anyway. So, so there's a lot of variables there. And I think it's worth considering that within this field of remote workers, there's a lot of different subcategories. So digital nomads is one. Digital nomads are often staying one to two months in any location. You also have people who are not, uh, not nomads. They just are taking extended holidays. So maybe in the past, you would go abroad and work for, you know, take a week off. Instead, you're going abroad for two months, but working for 90% of that time instead. So there's a lot of new behaviors that have emerged out of the remote working opportunity for those lucky enough to be able to. The other question is, if you're a freelancer or you have your own business, clearly you, you know, have more autonomy to be able to do that. 
in many cases, if you're working for a larger company, they won't allow you to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't lots of people who are doing it anyway and just not telling telling them that that companies um, right well, unless they're tracking the ISP, it really doesn't exactly. matter much. Depending on the organization. Um, so, what if again we've been talking a lot about the country side mm -hmm. of this and and what are the infrastructure things that islands and other destinations are investing in that make them attractive i mean you can't invest in sun and sand right mm -hmm. it, you were mentioning portugal you know i get going to madeira you know nobody's going to the shepherd village up in the mountains mm -hmm. to work remotely <laughs> so what well, are the maybe are the depends on what you want if you if you have a a family and you know, you're looking for somewhere to go that's quiet to get away from things for the summer. You might actually be really uh, interested by going to the remote village with with nothing for your digital detox. Um, but the reality is that many remote workers are young, likely single, um, you know, looking to go for a kind of social environment. And so one of the biggest things that the destination can do to attract people is creating community. And that's what Madeira did really well. They were able to create programs. So all these individuals coming on their own could go and know that they would have events and places to go and ways to meet other people. Because I think if you're an individual and you're going to some destination, to some new country, you want to know that it's going to be easy for you to find that community. So it's maybe it's not infrastructure, but I would say that's the number one thing to be appealing for people for, for, for remote workers uh, that you can do. And that could simply be a meetup once a week. It could be, um, uh, I guess, related to this is co-working spaces, which in themselves can provide community, but providing a space that people actually have to go and work from, from the office, uh, because maybe the accommodation doesn't always have a good place to work and people want that kind of environment. So co-working spaces are important. And then obviously, as we mentioned before, housing and uh, providing housing that is accessible in a way that allows people to cook their dinners at night in a way that a hotel doesn't, but also doesn't impact um, on the local housing prices. And so there are initiatives now to build co-living spaces for people that are essentially um, uh, in a way similar to hotels, but also have facilities more designed at people living there longer term, like kitchens. Um, and then also create that sense of community because you have a group of people that are staying there for longer periods of time. I know that Sardinia is doing a lot of that co-working, okay. creating those co-working kind of situations and actually encouraging entire companies to come oh, <laughs> for, okay. for long periods of time. Uh, let's talk about the, the Nomad. I mean, it sounds mm -hmm. great, right? Have backpack, will travel. Yeah, uh, you, you can, you know, you can code anywhere, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, what do I need to think about if I'm going to Montserrat or Madeira yeah. or wherever I'm going? What so are the things I, will, I need to get? I will say there is an idea that the digital nomads are mostly coders and developers. Um, but I, I know a human rights lawyer who works as a digital nomad. So, you know, there's a lot of different fields. I mean, it's harder to do if you're a plumber or a hairdresser. Um, not impossible. I know someone who's a tattoo artist and is able to um, is able to do it as well and find work on the road. 
Uh, but obviously, some careers are more open to that than others, um, and 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 the, there is that that divide. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> what do, if I'm thinking about doing this, right? Mm. If I am the human rights lawyer and I'm thinking about what I need to do here, uh, what do I need to think about so that this is a good experience and I'm not being a colonist weasel extractor? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's 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 a complicated one. I mean, there are certain destinations that have become well known as digital nomad hubs: Bali, Chiang Mai in Thailand, Medellin in Colombia, Lisbon in Portugal, um, and and those hubs, you know, have an existing community. Um, I think it's it's really important that people are self-aware about the impact that they're having and their involvement in the local community that they're creating a positive impact where they leave. Now that's easier to say than, than do in practice. Um, but, but there is this um, unfortunate often disconnect uh, that exists between the expat, nomad, whatever bubble, and then the local environment. So I think making the education is the, the basic thing that you can do to understand that where you're going is not just a fun place for you to sit on the beach and drink cheap cocktails, but also that there is a whole local community and people that are living and, and to understand that. I mean, that's that's the fundamental. Um, I do to think- some degree, to some degree, I always when I travel, I always like to think of it as their house, their rules. Of course. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And, and actually, I think it's important because I think that often, um, for example, if there are a rise in housing costs, for example. It's easy to point the finger at these people coming in, but I do think there is an important role for governments, whether it's local, state, national, to create the right environment and to protect the local citizens. So whether that is limiting Airbnbs or putting a quota on the number of visas, etc., there is a role for the local government also to create that right environment. But this is a relatively new phenomenon. There is going to be friction in the areas that are popular hotspots. Um, and I hope we find ways of managing that and making sure that the local places uh, that are receiving these visitors benefit. And I think one really important thing to consider is this remote work phenomenon has always been framed as rich Europeans and North Americans going to poorer countries and living the high life. But actually, we should rethink how we look at remote work. In our case, working with remote islands, you now have an opportunity to have a whole career that was not available to you previously without needing to emigrate as you might have done in the future. And so we need to be looking for ways that people living on these islands or receiving destinations are also able to access the benefits of remote work. And then I think we'll have a much more egalitarian approach and also be able to reduce some of these problems um, and, and issues that we're seeing. James, thank you so much. We are going to have links to Island Innovation and to James's Facebook page, uh, LinkedIn page, sorry. He probably doesn't want people stalking him on Facebook, uh, but we will have those links. I am going to uh, remove James for just a moment and remind you that by the time you are reading this, our new book, The Long Distance Team, 
will in fact be available. If you are thinking about how do I, with the return to work, create the kind of culture that I want for my team, this is the book for you. We are very excited about that. You can find our show notes on longdistanceworklife.com. Of course, you can reach out to myself or Marissa uh, by email, by LinkedIn. We are at your service. And of course, please like and subscribe this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I know that as the days get colder, palm trees and cheap booze seems really, really appealing. And there's some reality involved in all that. So I want to thank James for that. You have been a terrific audience. Don't let the weasels get you down. Have a great week. Hey.